Well, let's stand up and we'll start with a prayer. Pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Then open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. And plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in our okay, I don't remember exactly where we left off. If you guys want to, would you take these and just pass them around every couple people? My goal for the next round of catechism sessions is to have the readings printed out for you. And uh, print out like 15 copies and just so that however many people here will have plenty to share. And let me make sure that I'm in the right place. So we're in the very last chapter, the conclusion. The section is called the secular... No. Strategies for Godly Living, and I think we're just before it says social engagement. I don't think we finished that. Do you know where social engagement is? 271. Okay. When I get it all, when I start getting the printouts for you guys, um, then I'll have the page numbers. But... The goal, again, in uh, prioritize, we've been talking about what we focus on, what we, what we choose to do with our lives, and how what we do with our lives is, is a, a reflection of what it is that we care about, what we value. And uh, it's important to remember that in all of this, the main goal is to work out our salvation, you know, to draw nearer to God. And one of my favorite tangents to go off on, which I will not go off on wholesale right now, because that could be the next hour, but is a lot of times we are we're motivated to do the least required of us. What's the least I have to do? And it comes from a kind of a legalistic and consumeristic point of view. It comes from basically after the you know the the schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the and the Roman Catholic Church, and the the juridical or legal view of salvation that basically says like you need to clear your record and then you can get into heaven, so to speak. And um, we have a more organic view of salvation, like if you love God. You're not, not just going to think about clearing your record so that you are eligible to get into heaven. You know, getting, like spending eternity in the kingdom of God is not about eligibility or status. It's about love. 
And they say, well, God loves you and he forgives your sins. And that what's, that's what grants you entrance to the kingdom of heaven, maybe. But we have a more natural view in the Orthodox Church that's, that says, it's not the, the, the question isn't what's the least I have to do, but what's kind of what's the most I can do. Now, people who are converting to Orthodoxy will get overwhelmed with all the possibilities. All of the services that I could do, all of the books that I could read, all of the things that I could, you know, there's, it's, it can be like drinking from a fire hose. So that desire, that zeal has to be met with patience and moderation. And by patience, to quote a precious person named our Lord, um, Jesus, by patience we will preserve or gain our lives, he said. Because what we really care about is proven with time. If someone comes to church and they don't, I don't know, get what they wanted out of it, does it mean it's not true? Or does it mean that they're just a, you know, a self-centered consumer? And that's for, that's for each and every one of us to discern in our own lives, in our pursuit of truth. But what we really care about is, is ultimately proven when it withstands the test of time and when, it is, um, when patience is used as a litmus test for it, for whether or not something is real and true and good, or is it just another matter of impulse? And a lot of times, giving into impulses about self-affirmation, getting something that feels good or makes me feel good about myself. And we are plagued with insecurity these days. That's why social media is ramp, run rampant. It's just, it's, it's so incredibly successful. Because we fail at having real, meaningful, long-term relationships these days. And so we can have a lot of little soundbite, quick, self-affirming, like we were talking about, kind of thumbs up, great, great pick kind of relationships. And it makes us feel less lonely. But we're still lonely because we need Christ and we need the church and we need real people. And I've come to the realization as a priest, as a pastor of a community, that it doesn't, you don't need to have a massive social structure with 50 buddies. Sometimes it's just a few, one or two people that you can trust, that you can open up to. So I realize like when people visit the church, we don't need a whole social scene with a bunch of programs for them to be a part of. But we do need the people who are here to notice, like, hey, you're here today. How's it going? Let's sit down and talk. One or two nice people does what we're looking for, you know. And if we don't give in to that temptation to just jump back on, you know, on, online and talk about it every time, I finally found what I'm looking for. Good, good job. You know, well, that, what that proves is I'm looking, still looking for the approval of people, people out there, not the experience that I just had. And it, it creates, again, a, that disconnect. <clears throat> and so what we tend to do, and I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to go off for a whole hour on this, but um, what we tend to do is think, what's the least I can do? But 
like in a marriage, one of my favorite metaphors is that, you know, you wouldn't say to your spouse, what's the least, what's the least I can, I have to do in order to stay in a meaningful relationship with you? But it's how can I love you more if you want to have a healthy relationship? How can I learn more about you? How can we go grow closer to one another? And it's not, so the question of orthodoxy is not how can I become more orthodox? Forget that. If I had my way, it wouldn't be called orthodoxy. Because really what we believe, our conviction is that the Orthodox Church is just the original Christian church. It's what it means to be a faithful Christian and to experience the fullness of the life in Christ together. But because the, the, the language of Christianity has been used in so many different ways, we have to use those qualifiers. So when we use the like Orthodox Christian or Protestant Christian or Catholic or Lutheran or I'm just a Christian. What does that mean? You know, I mean, um, these days. But, um, but orthodoxy is not a label. I want to be more orthodox. No. Unless you really nuance it and then I might have that conversation with you. But, you know, you could just... Have a t-shirt made with bigger, a bolder font on it or something. Uh, more orthodox. But it's about fa- just falling in love with Christ more. Wanting, wanting to fall into the embrace of Christ more. And the church provides the means of doing it. Because we don't know how to do it. I heard a story once from an English author who went to church and he said, to his mom after the service. You know, they go on and on about how to, you know, about this and that. And if I were, if I were a priest, I would just say, you know what to do. Go do it. And then his mom said, but would you tell them how to do it? How? And the church provides the means. It provides the how. It provides the, the who, what, when, why, and how. And that's why there's a lot to do. And also remember, it's a culture, it's a way of life that's been developing for over 2,000 years now. So we're engrafting, we're being engrafted into that. And it takes time. And why are we doing it? Again, because we want to be members of the body of Christ. We want to be engrafted into the living vine that is Christ. And by, by taking on, the, by making these prayers our own, by reading the Psalms, by saying the Jesus prayer, by coming to services, when it's realistic for us to do, is making that a priority. We are demonstrating, we're revealing what it is that we care about. Not just, uh, again, like, turn off your phone. I don't care if you ever post anything about St. Paul Orthodox Church on a social media page. I'd rather you be here rather than sending a cute or cool picture of an icon to your friends. I mean, there's a place for that, maybe. It's a form of outreach. But I don't want that to be why anyone comes here. You know, I want you to be, when you're here, I just, I want you to be here. I want you to be refreshed. I want you to be challenged and going deeper in your relationship with Christ. And... Who was it? I mean, we were talking about social media during coffee hour. Is it you? It was saying, like, 
when you watch a video, when you're watching things on YouTube, for example, it does something to you. It affects you, it influences you. And same with when you, if you open up the prayer book and you just say those prayers. It affects you, it influences you, it changes you when you read the Gospels regularly. You may not understand anything, but you can, or everything, but you can understand something. Or when you start saying just simple, focused prayers like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It changes you. I heard someone say so beautifully about the saints. What's so great about the saints? Well, what's so great about them is that they fell in love with Christ so much that all they wanted to do was bear witness to Christ. I mean, that's what makes them holy. That's what makes them set apart. Not that, you know, St. Sava is so, so neat and St. Nilos is amazing and St. John Chrysostom is the best, even though he is the best. But that's not the point, that they just love Christ so much that they became like, like, like stars in the firmament of creation. And where, what's the source of the light of the stars of creation? I mean, it's God himself. They inspire us to, to love God in a similar way that they love God. But they never see their lives as an, as an end in themselves. And, but someone gave this beautiful, simple definition of a saint. And you'll probably hear me quote it several times. Um, a friend who was a monk on Mount Athos, and now he's a teacher of theology in, in the States. But he said, the saints are those who have learned to, always, to just always say yes to God. That's a good endeavor. How can I, can I go through an entire week and do my best just to try to say yes to, to God every step of the way? Wow. I don't even know what I'm saying yes to. You know what I mean? That's, that's part of where we're beginning. Is I, I don't always know the difference between right and wrong. You know? Sometimes in spiritual counsel, I'll tell people, sometimes you don't know what to do. What's the right decision? A lot of times you know what not to do. So you could start with that. I know I shouldn't call this person and unleash on them or gossip about someone or eat another bag of chips. I don't really need to do that or whatever it may be. So when you learn some restraint in saying no to yourself, then it actually strengthens you, enables you to learn how to say yes to God more too. It's beautiful. Anyway, so the goal isn't, what's the least I can do? Um, our focus is on our, our self, working out our salvation and that of our family. And so we don't pray for the sake of prayer or attend services in order to get an, a good attendance certificate. And I really, to be honest, most of the time I don't really pay attention to, to who's here and how many people are here. Because I'm going to be here whether or not you're here. Because I love it here. It's like to be in the church feels like a better than a dream come true. It's like I get to almost be in heaven. Like when we're in church, I get to almost be in heaven. Or I get the smackdown that I need that helps me see what delusions are affecting my life. But I'm here because I need it. And of course, I want you to be here and I want the whole world to be orthodox. But, but it's not so that Father Jeremiah can see you, you know.
Oh, Amy came to another service. Nice, or something like that, you know? That's not what it's about. Whether or not someone even acknowledges that you were here, God sees you, and he just wants you to be close to him. So it's not about the prayer, you know, that, that you prayed just for the sake of prayer, or getting an attendance certificate, or turn off the television just to say, oh yeah, I turned off the television the other day, or, you know, like, we got rid of our TV. Good for you, but how many hours do you spend on YouTube now, or whatever it may be, you know what I mean? Uh-oh, you're not supposed to ask that question. Or turn off the television just for the sake of a little peace and quiet or something like that. But we do, the goal is that we want to gain something that's incorruptible. There's very little that we can carry with us to the kingdom of God. Naked I came, naked I will depart this world. You know, and that is a mentality that we need to carry with us. I heard a teaching from the sayings of the Desert Fathers, and I need to find it again at some point, but someone said that, you know, there could be some monk who lives in a little hut in the middle of the desert who has very little possessions. But if he desperately clings to the very few things that he has, then he's just as much a materialist and a consumerist as you or I. We can go to the store around the corner and get anything we want anytime. On the flip side, there could be someone who owns mansions and properties. And I know people like this. And they realize they don't get to take any of it with them. Everything, everything that I need will be there in the kingdom of God. So anything that I am given now is not my own. It's for the sake of God's glory. For the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. I was at this... I was at a retreat... A, an Orthodox leadership retreat where clergy and laity, so, you know, ordained clergy, they, they were trying to have, I don't remember what it was like, 20% clergy and, 20, and, and 80% Orthodox laity, or just that, that laity, do, do you guys know what that word means? It comes from the Greek word, it just means people. People, like the people in the church, not, you know, the special ones that wear black robes. Um, but it was to get people who are living the, just the daily Orthodox life, but who are leaders in their workplaces, who are, you don't have to have a cassock in order to be a leader or to be, you know, to do meaningful work in the church. So they were trying to discuss what people could do, especially people who are successful in the, uh, in the in the in the world, so to speak, people have a lot of money. There are some, there are, believe it or not, there are people out there who have a lot of money. I don't know what that's like, but some of them are so successful that they they've tried to figure out one of their crises is how to use the money that I do have or the means that I have to glorify God, not just to get tax breaks, but. There were some people that do a thing called a reverse tithe. You know, the common, the common approach to giving to the church is, ideally, if you can, you give a tenth of what you, of your income to support the church. These days, it's hard for people if they, some people can't make ends meet on 90% of their income. 
So you give something, you give what you can. But there are people who are wildly successful. And so they've started to do a reverse tithe where they live on 10% of their income and give 90% away. And these are people who are like building churches and we're supporting missions like the Orthodox Church is growing, booming in Africa, for example. And uh, anyway, because they love they love God and they love the church and they, don't, and they realize they can't take it with them, you know, I guess is my point. So the goal is something incorruptible that can't be purchased. It can't be purchased, but it can be obtained by learning to say yes to God first. So um, the goal is so that we may be conformed to the image or conformed to the likeness of Christ, participating in the communion of love which is the life of the Holy Trinity. In Matthew 16, we read, for example, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. I have to fast. You know, feeling sorry for yourself. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men as to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And for us, a lot of that treasure is these days is seeking the acknowledgement of other people desperately. Even if we have lots of money, we use it to gain the attention of other people. We're desperately seeking the attention of others. And we're, whereas we have a God who is ready, who's always attentive to us, but is just ready for us to turn our attention to him in return. And we'll never be lonely if we take that seriously. But there's some, there are some breakthroughs that have to take place before we experience that, before we understand that. But do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me read something to you um, that's not in the text, but I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with it. We've got time. We're just trying to finish this chapter. Um, I've got a little, a little story from the life of St. Basil that I like reading on January 1st sometimes, but uh, you guys get it this time. There we go, St. Basil the Great. So listen to this. this, is this it encapsulates this mentality that, that I'm talking about. It's loading right now, this little. So St. Basil lived and worked in the 4th century, so the 300s, when the church was just starting to work hand in glove with the Roman state. So Christianity was no longer an illicit religion. Do you remember when Christianity was, was, was uh, accepted or no longer persecuted? Do you remember what happened? 
Anyone? Are there any history buffs here? Edict of Milan, Milan, 313, St. Constantine. It wasn't the official religion yet, but it was no longer uh, an illicit religion. So there, there, there was some coordination even between Christians and state at that point. Uh, the new relation took, took some getting used to, and before this, the Christians tried to avoid the state and its police wherever they could, since the coming of the Roman police or soldiers was often a prelude to martyrdom. So, you know, they wanted to take care of their families, and they wanted to try to live a little bit. And so now the Roman state was everywhere inclined to favor the Christians and even fund their endeavors. So it took some getting used to, but many career-minded Christians got used to it soon enough and began working enthusiastically with the state, taking abundant care not to rock the new boat. So St. Basil was not among them. He was not afraid of rocking the boat. The moment the state starts giving you money, I mean, like, I think, what, what are some of the greatest influences that the state has over us? Like, they give nonprofits and churches tax breaks. That would be a big change for us if they didn't, if they took that away. But are we, are we going to do, merely do what we're told to do simply so that we don't lose our tax breaks? You know what I mean? Um, and St. Basil saw that. You can't compromise the truth for the sake of the benefits that come from the relationship you get from, you know, the, the secular world or the state or the government. So it took some navigating when this change took place to discern what this relationship was like. But St. Basil never minded rocking the boat if he thought that the boat needed rocking. And during the, uh, the Arian interlude in the 4th century, when the Arian heresy became very popular, um, it needed plenty of rocking. One day, for example, a new, as a new bishop, St. Basil strove against the popular and state-sponsored Arian heresy, which divide, de- denied the divinity of Christ. In his exchange of words with the emperor's prefect, Modestus, St. Basil spoke so boldly and bluntly that it left the prefect stammering in astonishment. St- the, the, the state was used to having people under their thumb so people, of course, anyone would do what they were told because they were, people were afraid of them. I could take everything away from you, you know what I mean? Like, I can choose whether you're in or out of favor. Ooh, okay, I guess I want to be in favor. <laughs> what do I have to do? You know, I don't want to be persecuted or imprisoned or anything like that. So they weren't used to someone who was not a state worker having such boldness. And now that Christianity was a, a, was a, a licit religion or legal faith, um, Christians also could speak with boldness too. So St. Basil started doing that. So he was talking to Modestus and he spoke so boldly that the prefect was stammering in astonishment. And the prefect had st- summoned Basil to a tribunal and insisted that St. Basil fall in line with the rest of the more pliant bishops and accept the, interior, uh, the imperial interpretation of the faith, meaning divine, denying the divinity of Christ. Everyone else has yielded, Modestus said, and you alone refuse to accept the religion commanded by the king. 
It's not the will of my king, St. Basil replied. I cannot worship anything that has been created since I myself am created by God. The prefect examining Basil was incensed. What do you think of us? He roared. Are we nothing? You are a prefect, but I shall honor but I shall not honor you more than I do God. Do you know what I can do to you? Don't you fear my power? asked Modestus. There are many things I can do to you. Name them. St. Basil said. St. Basil can get a lot away with a lot more than I ever could. I don't have that kind of boldness. I can confiscate your possessions, banish you, torture you, put you to death. Is that all? None of these things trouble me. You cannot confiscate my possessions, for I have none. Banishment, exile, what are these things to me? Everywhere on God's earth I am at home. Torture cannot touch me, for I have no longer a body to torture. As for death, it is welcome to me, for it will bring me sooner into his blessed presence. Prefect was taken aback. (laughs) No one has ever addressed me in such a manner until now. No doubt, St. Basil replied. Probably you've never met a proper bishop until now. In any way, that's, that's the story. There's a little more of a reflection on here. But, um, but I just wanted to share that because we're talking about our, our self-image and our self-perception as relates to our relationship with the world that we live in. And so much of our self-image and the value of the life that we receive is given to us or imposed on us. And we cling to it because we're afraid of losing it. Losing social acceptance, for example. But we need, we need to hear things like the teachings of St. Basil. And many of the martyrs, like you and I, we, pro- we may not have our you know, head cut off because we're a Christian. But it may feel like you're having your social head cut off by saying, I'm a Christian. And I'm thankful to God that I am. And I believe in it. Oh, well, we can't associate with you. You're closed-minded. I mean, for some people, that's worse. Being ostracized from a peer group is, is worse than death itself. You know? That's, it's terrible. That's one of the reasons we need the church. And we need you and you and you and me who, who would have probably never found each other and hung out together. But here we are. You know what I mean? God's bringing, he's, he's creating something transcendent and beautiful. Even in this little place, this little funny little holy community in Briar, Washington. Something real is happening and we need it. We need what's happening here. It's very, very important. Okay. So social engagement. We're going to go in the next section. I'm going to stop just reflecting on things and we're going to work our way through the end of our chapter here. So social engagement. The idea of catacomb Christianity has a certain romantic appeal to it. 
know, like you think, oh, the early Christians, they were so clandestine in their faith. And, you know, they ran off into the catacombs at night and prayed candlelit services. They, why did they do it? Because they could have been killed for worshiping publicly. But we, we kind of romanticize it sometimes. It's easy to picture ourselves as a persecuted minority. And it kind of makes us feel special sometimes if we do that. Like, oh, Christians are being marginalized these days. And I'm, you know, it makes us feel like we're countercultural. We need to be careful not to allow it to go to our heads. Meeting in secret, living life of an inner rebellion against a world which has sold itself to the devil. And I really do believe that as far as the world is concerned, if we take Orthodox Christianity seriously, it is countercultural. Indeed, this is what will happen during the reign of the Antichrist. Nevertheless, the end of the age, however close at hand it may be, is not here yet. Not here. Why? How do we know that? How do we know the end of the age is not here yet? Okay. Yeah, anyone else? Yeah, we're still here. We're still here. You said it? That's right. You know, you're getting into the mind of Father Jeremiah. I think, like, I'm kind of a simpleton when it comes to certain things. Like, oh, we're just still here. It hasn't happened yet. So, you guys are super spiritual, theological um, converts to orthodoxy. So, give it 15 years and then you'll start thinking more simply. <laughs> anyway, so it's not here yet. So until the time comes when Christians can no longer live their faith openly, we have a duty to engage the society in which we live and bear witness um, to the light that is within us. So we have, we have the freedom to live, to live as Christians. We have just as much the right to live as a Christian, not to force feed it or to, to be a jerk about it, but to, re- to be authentic about it. Why? Someone can say, I'm gay at work. And it's like they can say that. They have the right. And you can say, I'm a Christian at the right place in the right time. That's okay. Or I'm, I've discovered Orthodox Christianity. And it's, it's everything I've always been looking for. Aren't they judgmental? You know, it's like not based on what I've experienced. You don't have to cave when people jump to conclusions about who you are. They don't know about it. So tell them what your experience is. Wow, it's not. It's anti-judgmental. It's pro-truth, but it's anti-judgmental. I mean, like, and uh, it's okay, like, to learn, to take, to experience the freedom that you have to be a Christian. And to say also, I mean, you probably know, like, to also say there are a lot of people who, who have, we're expressing different approaches or forms to Christianity that are confusing or super harsh and judgmental or motivated by self-righteousness. And we're looking for something that's deeper and purer than that. I mean, that's we, the Orthodox Church is very different than maybe the Christianity or the Christ that people think that they're rejecting. A friend who's a, a monk. Do you guys know who Father Trifon is? You know, he has his little, his little podcast and blog. And anyway, you know, he um, he goes around, he travels around a lot and t- meets with people and talks and gives little talks and things. And 
He said uh, he was going to the grocery store once and uh, he bumped into someone and uh, someone who looked kind of like hippie, kind of cultural, you know, trying to stand out a little bit. And he goes, nice threads or something like that to them. And struck up a little conversation and they said, you know, I don't believe in God. And he said, well, what God don't you believe in? That's a good question. What God are you saying you don't believe in or reject? And they said, well, the, the one who's vindictive and sends people to hell and this and that. And he goes, oh, I don't believe in that God either. I, if, if that was my, the criterion for me, then I would be an atheist too. And even St. Justin Martyr, one of the early Christian uh, teachers and uh, defenders of the faith, he said, we, if we are atheists, if you're talking about a false god, a god that's not the god that is, that ours, that is ours. So they can create some caricature of God that they reject, and we would, it's okay also to be compassionate and say, I don't believe in that God either. I reject that version or that concept of God as well. So we don't need to feel threatened. But also, and it's, so it's not, a, also it's not about being like proud and saying, I'm an American and I have religious freedom, you know, therefore I can... tell you that you should be too or something like that, you know. No, but there's a balance. Are you getting what I'm, you catching what I'm throwing? I'm not trying to beat you guys up. Of course, I had to cross that threshold when I um, became a priest because I just, you know, I'm, a, I'm always, I always look like a foreigner wherever I go, unless I'm here. But uh, anyway, we have a duty to engage the society in which we live and bear witness to the light that is within us. We hear in the Gospel of Matthew, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Glorify your Father. So it's not about, you know, Christ, a Christian form of virtue signaling, you know, like you're a really great Christian. You're not like other Christians, <laughs> you know. No, I want you to glorify God. I want them to glorify God. Although our society is in many ways like that of the Roman Empire before the conversion of Constantine, there's one major difference. We have a voice on how our government is run and how our society is structured, and Orthodox Christians can make their voices heard. The first and most fundamental rule of Orthodox social engagement is that we're to judge, judge no one, which means it's okay to disagree with people. You know, one of the things that many people need to learn, it's, it's okay to disagree with someone, and it doesn't mean that you hate them just because you disagree with them, you know? But again, remember going back to what I was saying about how we're constantly, really, the plague that we have these days is we're seeking affirmation and attention from other people. Disagreeing with someone automatically threatens that, the condition of, our, of a copacetic relationship. But that kind of relationship that doesn't allow for disagreement isn't a relationship at all. 
It's not a meaningful one. So we don't need to, and so we judge others as, as a way of kind of hedging ourselves, protecting ourselves. Say, they're right, we're wrong, or something like that. And it's a, we do, we do not condemn other people. We have to approach everything out of a love for truth and a love for others. So it's a difficult challenge when we're faced with manifest evil and all manner of sexual perversions that are being popularized these days. It's difficult not to feel in some sense superior to those living their lives in sin. Nevertheless, we must remember that our own souls are as full as evil desires, full of evil desires as anyone. And that we will be judged with the same measure with which we judge others. Here in Romans 1, it's a longer quote. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. He let them, he basically, he's saying, St. Paul's saying, God has afforded or allowed humans to freely pursue what they want to do, even if it's in opposition to him. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. I like that one because I have three little kids. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's one of the reasons we can't be approving of people who practice. We can love, you know, the classic, um, hate the sin, love the sinner. I mean, that is, that's a really, that's a very orthodox position. And St. John of Kronstadt, I need to find the quote again. Um, I used to have it right on hand, but he says, do not confuse the, the sin committed by the person with the person created in the image of God who's committing that sin. You don't have to approve of someone's behavior or lifestyle choices in order to show that you care about them. Despite what society says. And it's okay for it's okay if someone says you're closed-minded. And you 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 could say, well, it depends on what you mean by that. And if if it's according to your criterion or your definition, then I might be and that's okay. You know? If you don't think that children should be transitioned to another biological sex through, you know, through having physical, I mean, through hormone therapy and, and mutilatory procedures, like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're a transphobe, but someone, if, if someone wants to call you a transphobe for disagreeing with that, then you can just take it, just go, okay, I don't, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of people, I don't have a, a fear of trans people, but I am concerned about the health and well-being of our children. But don't worry about that. Name-calling is so shallow. Even though it's so powerful in our society, don't worry about that. Like, try to cling to what's true, what's true and, but be humble about it too. Because it's our, it's our pride. It's actually our own pride. Our personal pride mingles with our desire for truth, the truth of God, and then we act as if the God's truth is our own, and then we start wielding it like a like a weapon, 
and a self-defense mechanism. You know, like people, what did they call them? Bible? Huh? Bible thumpers. Bible thumpers. You know, like, don't use the truth as a, you know, as a weapon to harm other people. We wield it that way. St. Paul continues in Romans 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man. And if you're in this class, uh-oh, you don't have an excuse anymore. You're inexcusable, O oh man. Whoever, whoever you are um, who judge, for when it, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? I have a very simple spiritual principle that I like to remind people of. The reason that I can see, identify sin in your life or in your life, I can see sin in other people is because I myself have a great familiarity with that sin. It's close to home. And it's easier for me to point it out as if you're the one doing it. That's what St. Paul is saying here. Like, there's a reason you're judging others. Because you do the same thing. And you know what? If you really worked on smashing that sin within yourself, then you would care about the people who are struggling and making terrible mistakes. And you would cry. You would weep, you know, rather than judging them. But because you haven't overcome that sin within yourself, you judge others. It's a really powerful teaching. And this, this thing takes a lot of reshaping of one's heart and mind. Our hearts and our mind, our consciousness, our way of thinking about things has been formed for a lot of people who become Orthodox are adults. You know, it's taken you, what, 30 40, 50, 60 years up to this point. Is there anyone over 60 in here? 60? Yeah? 63 years. I don't know. 64 years. Okay, anyway. Um, but, you know, of, of thinking a certain way, acting a certain way, being a certain way. And so when we, when we draw near to the church, it's like wax drawing near to the warmth of God so that it can be reshaped, it can be softened and shaped by him. But that change is even kind of feels threatening and feels foreign, but it can happen no matter what age you are or how, you know, how used to being the way, how, used to, how, how established you are in your you know, behaviors and habits. God can work with that if you're humble enough about it. So keeping this in mind, let us consider several social concerns and some ways in which we as Orthodox Christians can address them. Um, and I, you know, what, one of the things I will say just pastorally is I don't, um, I don't, talk, I don't talk or preach politics, just I don't, ever. I'm really, really careful when I give my homilies, especially. Uh, I don't, like, you'll hardly ever hear me say, like, the name of a, a public figure, a social movement, a... All of these things, because either I'm, either I'm stroking someone's ego, or I'm, you know, triggering someone. And the only thing I want 
them to do is, again, to, to anyone who's here, to be exposed to Christ and his teaching in the church as revealed in and through the church. And I want that to carry, carry, carry us forward into our lives. I want that to be our reality rather than whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat or anything like that. So when we talk about the relevance of contemporary issues, we're not talking about them in a political or kind of partisan way. I really, I'm coming to the con conviction that if you really, if you want to be a, a true, no, I don't want to say that, it sounds extreme, but I'll say as an Orthodox Christian, you really can't be loyal to a, like a particular party. Can you be a Republican? Can you be a Democrat? I mean, I know there are people who are both, but the deeper they go in their faith, they realize like those associations are almost nothing. Because the party, each party can change its opinion tomorrow. You know, it's ha it happens. So, um, anyway. An Orthodox Christian is not a political party. You know, it's an identity. So, I've been, I, uh, environmental issues, social justice, abortion, and public morality are all things that are relevant to us, though. So let's begin on the very ground on which we stand. We've said that, it's, that the proper relationship with the world is a sacramental one. So we've, we're consumerists, you know, we approach the world as consumers, as those who, for whom the world is created, and we treat it as if it's there for my satisfaction. And we take it for granted, and we don't have a sacramental relationship with the world. We see the world as an end in itself. So we receive the, the things of the world properly, as a gift of communion from God. And we must use them with respect and care. So proper stewardship of the word world begins with conservation in our homes and can extend to active support of conservation organizations and even simple things. I mean, I, again, I'm not saying recycle aluminum cans and gain your soul, but, <clears throat> but we can be less wasteful because... Everything that we have is a is a part of God's creation, the world that we've created, and we we're trying to we're trying to heal something, a, a broken relationship that we have with the world. You know, the world is afraid of us now because we've 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 become dominant and enemies of creation itself. And something very powerful happens if you read the lives of certain saints, like Saint Modestus of Jerusalem, Saint Seraphim of Sarov. Saint uh, Erasmus of the Jordan, like many saints, when they, when, they res when they purify their hearts and they start loving the world as God created it to be, the animals are no longer afraid of them. Saint Paisios, he would talk to the animals. He had a bear that, he would, that would come to the front of the mon one of his monasteries and he would feed it a little every day. And he knew that some visitors were coming. He was he restored, working on restoring a monastery kind of run down monastery by himself for a while. So he's kind of out in the woods or up on a mountain by himself a lot. So he had the birds and he had the animals and there was a bear that would come see him and he would feed it and he would say, one day he knew some visitors were coming and he told the bear, don't come to the front door tomorrow. Go to the back door. Otherwise you'll scare the visitors. Sure enough, the next day, I think it was a lady comes, 
start running into the monastery. There's a bear out front. Uh, you know, it's freaking out. And St. Pius goes, runs up to the bear and he goes, I told you, go around the back door and I'll give you something to eat. And the bear went and went around. Um, and he gave him a bite to eat. So you see St. Seraphim of Sarov also fed a bear. St. Eurasmus of the Jordan had a, um, a, a relationship with a lion. So the, the animals were no longer at enmity or afraid of, of these purified individuals. And it's not a woo-woo thing like we all wish we just had one with the world or something like that. But um, it's just, it's basic. Like, you know, there's no threat there anymore for the person of love who loves. But it, it's not something that you can, it's also not a fire you can play with. Did you hear about Grizzly Man movie about, about that guy who thought he was close with the grizzlies and really they just thought the bears weren't hungry when he was up there most of the time and he ended his life by being mauled by a bear and eaten by by them he thought he was had this special relationship with bears and he, you know yeah it was horrific it was terrible him and his girlfriend and uh and the audio was recorded when they got attacked it was so sad so that's not what I'm talking about. Don't play with fire in that regard. You know, don't, don't, don't put God to the test. Okay. Um, but we can, just, we can try to be more sensitive to the world that we live in. A little less wasteful. You know. We're not going to save the world from impending judgment by you know, recycling every piece of you know, aluminum or glass that we have. But, but it's a good thing to do. Um, the, the point is that we should care about the, the environment, the world that we live in, because it is God's creation. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. As beautiful as a mountain stream or forest is, however, the whole of creation is not as valuable as one human being. For every person sums up within himself the entirety of the human race and is the very image of his creator. So when we encounter a street person, a derelict, or hungry Child, we must remember that we are encountering our very selves. Poverty, hunger, and injustice are our problems because they affect our brethren. We must participate fully in the charitable efforts of our local parish. And, and it can be simple and humble. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be some, you know, incredible feat of philanthropy. Something rather than nothing. And don't worry about it. I forgot which of the saints it was. He says, when you see a hungry or, um, or a beggar, he said, reach into your pocket and whatever comes out, give it to him. He didn't say, and reflect on whether or not he's going to go get his fix or something like that. But give them something, a little something. The idea is not to overcomplicate it. They're giving us an opportunity, those who are in need. The poor will always be with you, the Lord said. And so we, we have the opportunity to show our love in a simple way. And I learned regarding even those in need, even if you give them something, a dollar or two, you know. Um, someone taught me this. You give them a little, a buck or something, and then you say, what's your name? Okay, my name is John. Will you say a prayer for me? 
So here you go, here you go, pray for me. My name's John. And it, it dignifies them as someone, wait, they have something to offer? Because a lot of them, if they say God, unless it says, I hate God and I'm an atheist or something like that. Well, But most people say, you know, homeless, anything helps, God bless. So just say, here you go, here's a little something. Say a prayer for me today, okay? They go, oh, well, oh, sure. It's a really beautiful thing to do. Um, so we can participate in things like food banks, which we do, clothing closets, closets, and we, we um, during the fasting seasons, we usually collect foods for the, the local pregnancy center here in um, Linwood. One of the simplest things we can do is visit the elderly, visit nursing homes, and share our love for those who have been forgotten by the world. And it's important to note that there's no single Christian position in regard to the exact role which government should play in dealing with many social problems. It's possible for Orthodox Christians to take different sides of a given public debate on some issues. Neither the Democratic or the Republican Party can claim to represent the Christian, let alone the Orthodox Christian position on all social issues. There is one, so, one social issue, however, about which there can be no discussion and no compromise, and that's the abortion the holocaust. Um, the church has condemned abortion as murder from the very beginning, from the, even from, have you heard of the didache, or didache they call it sometimes? But one of the earliest Christian writings is already dealing with the issue of abortion even in society. In, even in the, uh, the Barnabas's epistle, that, uh, it was, this is even older than the didache, also mm-hmm. talks about yeah. abortion. Yeah, so this has been something that, there's, there's been no gray area for, for the church on this from the very beginning. And of course, St. Maximus, the confessor, was asked, once, <clears throat> when does life begin? And he pointed them to the feast that we celebrate on March 25th. Do you know what that one is? Anyone? The Annunciation. Annunciation. The Annunciation. The Annunciation where Gabriel appeared to Mary and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and Christ was conceived. So he says that's when life begins. So there's no question to us, you know, when personhood begins. We would say it begins at conception. And so we, we would say, as, as, a, as tragic as it is, that people are so confused and misled on the issue, we can be compassionate and loving, and we must toward people who are confused about it. But there's no gray area, you know, regarding abortion. Um, that's something that, that we have to be honest with ourselves about and be willing to be countercultural. I gave a homily about it a while back. Were any of you here for that one? Um, and, and so if you have questions about it, you can go back and listen. I called it abortion and orthodox perspective. And, uh, Could it be said that we life begins before conception for us because God already knew that we were going to be born? No. No. Just because God knows what has happened doesn't mean that it has happened. It hasn't happened because we're, God is outside of time and we're within time. That gets into an interesting, it's, people have gone down that path, but then they would say humans are pre-existent. There's a pre-existence to humans. The soul, the soul is, is uncreated then. Yeah, if it ex- Originism existed in the mind of God before it was materialized, and we don't believe that. 
We believe that because God is outside of time and transcends time and space, God knows what has happened before it happened, before it has happened, because it happened <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the mind of God. But that doesn't mean that it existed before it was conceived. Um, but that's a good question. But we would say it has, it has eternal you know, value in a way. And I can kind of see what you're getting at there is to say that there's more to it than just merely when it was materialized or something like that. Um, no Orthodox Christian may have an abortion or in any way help or encourage someone else to have an abortion. An Orthodox Christian medical professional may perform or assist in performing an abortions. And that's a, that's a dividing line for people who work in healthcare. They have to be willing to give up their license or change careers. There, there can be no capitulation in this regard. So in addition, it's unconscionable for an Orthodox Christian to belong to such, he says, demonic organizations. Yeah, I mean, but the National Organization for Women or Planned Parenthood, National Organization for Women, can't even tell you what a woman is. Um, why is the position of the church on abortion so intransigent? Because we believe in the Holy Trinity. We believe that God is a personal being whose very life and essence is love. We believe that we're created in the image of God, of triune love, that each person is unique and unrepeatable, summing up within himself all of humanity. We also, and that's that, again, that personhood. We would not say that, um, that what's conceived is something that has the potential for personhood or to be a human. We would say it is a person. And that means to, that person is a unique soul, unrepeatable a person created in the image of God. So we also believe that God has become a man, uniting himself, humanity with himself, becoming our brother as well as our Lord. The murder of one child by abortion is therefore an act of genocide. And I would never really use this language in speaking with someone. I would talk about not only the, um, the value of the unborn child, but also, you know, there's a, there's a movement out there that... A lot of that's used in a lot of pregnancy resource places that are pro-life. You'll say save two lives. Save two lives. Not just the life of the child, but also of the mother. Because a lot of suffering comes as a result of a mother aborting her own child. And another thing that must be said is that healing from this can take place. I've confessed people who have had abortions. I've counseled in the churches. And it's not for you to know who they are. Because God knows and he can help them recover from that. Even that tragedy that they did out of fear or out of ignorance. You know, out of manipulation or whatever it may be. Um, one of my dreams, if I, if I had, if maybe through the prayers of St. Basil, especially in an area like this. I mean, I'd love to have a home for single pregnant young ladies in this area. What if we could do something like that? Rather than saying, keep your child and struggle hard. You know what I mean? It's worth it. But, or here's some diapers or something. But like, my boyfriend doesn't want to be in a relationship with me, with me anymore. What am I supposed to do? You know, I, those, these are things we really do need to pray about as Christians. How, how and what we can do um, in order to, uh, to really love people rather than just standing there saying that what's going on is wrong. 
So supporting local pro-life organizations and using our vote to influence public policy is important. It's even more important that we work with, uh, work to create alternatives to abortion. Crisis pregnancy centers and Christian adoption programs desperately need our support. A lot of people too, like they, they've, they decide that they're going to, um, they're going to adopt for that reason. I have a friend who has, they've been doing some fostering and they're very pro-life people too. And they were just given like kind of the double whammy opportunity where they got called by the agency saying, we have a teenage girl who's pregnant and we can't place her anywhere. Will you guys take her? She goes, they're like, yeah, we will. Yeah, we'll. So they're going to get two. <laughs> they're basically adopting two, you know. This teenage girl and her unborn child. It's really sweet. He knows, my friend knows it's going to be hard. He goes, get ready for the storm to begin. And then he goes, the storm of God's grace in our life. But uh, anyway, that's, that's a good example. And you can't solve, like when it comes to these problems, you can't solve the, the whole problem yourself. But there's something, like you can do something. We can all do something. You can't be kind to a million people and convince them all that you're a great person. But you can be loving to one, to one you know. Or you can't give, empty out your entire bank account in order to prove a point. Because then you'll destroy your own life and your own family. But you can be generous in some regards, you know, to support what you believe in. So... Um, see the eyes of abortion see a child as a problem to be solved rather than as a gift from God given for our salvation we must share our vision of reality with the world around us and part of it is just giving people hope too and hoping, helping to overcome where there is genuine ignorance as with all sin the greatest victim is the one who commits it in the case of abortion the greatest victim is the mother <clears throat> And in murdering her child, she has murdered her, her own. She's just, I wouldn't say murdered, to be honest, but she has really damaged her own soul. We must reach out to these victims of abortion and to those who may yet be victimized and share with them the unconditional love of the Holy Trinity. And only when we begin to experience the Trinitarian life of the church and share that life with the world around us will we put a stop to abortion. And it was pretty. It was pretty incredible when, um, like, Roe v. Wade was overturned. You know, something that, which, what is going on? Is this the United States that I live in? You know, it was really hopeful, but then at the same time, it's not eradicating abortion altogether, but it is giving the states the freedom to choose. And now we live in one a state that's proudly a what a sanctuary state for abortions. So that means. That's something that we really need to think and pray about. How, you know, we're small, but we can be small and mighty, perhaps, you know, here, St. Paul. At least through prayer. We pray for the mothers of unborn children and for the protection of those children in their mother's wombs. And that's good. But we should also think about how we can actually help people. And let's pray to God that He guides us because the crazier the world gets, the more people are going to be looking for. Um, Sanity, stability, salvation, and help. And if we really do, do believe that the church is the ark of salvation, 
People who are swimming out there in the waves of the world, they're going to be looking for a raft to grab onto. And I feel like St. Paul Orthodox Church in the greater Seattle area is a definitely a raft that people are grabbing onto. So may God grant us to be faithful and a healing presence in the lives of other people. Allowing the light and life of the All-Holy Trinity to shine through our life into the world around us is also the way we must address issues of public morality. We can no longer expect the government to be the guardian of public, of public mores. We must be the light of the world. There are some concrete things, of course, we can do to influence society. We vote with our money, you know, so we can refuse to patronize stores with sell por- pornographic <coughs> literature. Or nowadays, we, we can refuse to give our money to companies, even if they have good streaming content that we like, but if they have terrible stuff on there, don't give them our money. If they support and fund causes that we don't believe in, we can't support them anymore. Even if we think we get some benefit out of what they do. We can refuse to spend our money on music and movies which encourage unrighteousness. And that's, it's just okay to do that. It's okay to not fit in in that way. Did you see the latest episode of whatever? Did, did you binge that show? You know, it's like, it's okay not to be someone who binges shows. It's okay. It's actually healthy not to do that. Not to binge things. Anything. So there's a healing that needs to take place. And when you, you know, when you cancel your Netflix account, you might have a little FOMO going on if you're missing out, you know. But, but if you realize that there's a life worth living outside of that, then you can, you have to admit it first, but you can start living a really beautiful life that is worth living. There's no point in decrying the divorce rate or sexual promiscuity when we're not working to make our own homes into genuine Christian homes. The world is in darkness, searching for truth and light. And if we're not bearers of truth and light, then the world will remain in darkness. To live an orthodox life in our society is not something that we can accomplish on our own. The glorious truth of orthodoxy, however, is that we are not alone. The life to which we are called is lived within the church which is Christ's body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The life we live in Christ is life in the Holy Trinity. May the All-Holy Trinity, through the intercessions of our Sovereign Lady, the Theotokos, and of all the saints who have been well-pleasing unto him throughout the ages, grant us his grace to faithfully live the life to which we have been called, and the boldness to share that life with the world. And then we have a quote from St. Nicholas Kavasilas from his book, The Life in Christ. Such is the life in Christ, concealed and thus made manifest by the light of good works, which is love. In the love, excuse me, in love the brightness of all virtue consists, and as far as human effort is concerned, it constitutes the life in Christ. Love. Love is everything because God is love. Accordingly, one would not err by calling it life, for it is union with God. This union is life, just as we know that death is separation from God. For this reason, Christ says, His commandment is eternal life. 
in John 12. Speaking of love, the Savior says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. John 6. Of which love is the sum. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. <clears throat> 1 John 4. Maybe you should read the epistle of 1 John this week. Which is the same as abiding in life and life in him. For he says, I am the life. What then may, what, what then may life be more fittingly called than love? For that which alone survives and does not allow the living to die when all things have been taken away is life and such is love. When all things have passed away in the age to come, as Paul says, love remains. And it alone suffices for life in Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom is due all glory forever. Amen. So, okay, where are we time-wise? we got a little more time. Now, of course, it's not enough just to talk about it there. You know what I mean? But at first, for a lot of us, it's... We just have to realize that we need to live the Christian life and, and that we don't know how to. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that gets us back to the, the way that the, the church has provided us with what we need, which is unto our salvation. We need each other. We need the teaching. We need the wisdom. We need the sacraments. We need the discipline. We need the joy, we need the feasting, and we need the fasting. We need each other. We need the embrace. We need the, you know, we need to, we need real touch. Real touch, sanctifying touch. Not touch that's demanding something or seeking to control or harm or own or pervert a relationship. Like Proto Deacon said so beautifully this morning, like, there, there was a time when to come into contact with something that was unclean meant to become unclean yourself. And Christ flipped that over, flipped that on its head. When he reached out and touched people, when he touched someone who was unclean, he wasn't rendered impure himself. He purified them. And that's how we need to be in our, in our manner of speech with one another, beginning in our homes and in our church community. So when we're in the world, we're, we are being a source of you know, healing, a source of life, um, rather than feeling like we're living a life that's just absolutely, totally compromised by you know, the toxicity and turmoil that's, going, that's all around us. Um, but... Uh, to live the life, you know, as an Orthodox Christian, it means to take one, one step at a time, to be patient. And discernment doesn't come, true intuition, you know, true discernment. It doesn't come automatically or immediately. It takes patience. It takes a lot of time to develop that. You know, we barely know who we are, let alone to... to to act like we know who God is. <laughs> who am I? I'm like, I'm looking in the mirror every day and I barely know who that person is. You know, let alone the uncreated God, the author of all creation. 
But there's an interesting thing that happens when we start pursuing God and we come to the realization of who God is. Then we come to realize who we are. So our endeavor into, you know, I don't know, into the, the mystery of life and God that's been manifest by Christ and that's constantly being revealed in the, in the church and in our services and, you know, the manner of our life in the church. Um, that starts to re- reveal who God is and then, by extension, who we are. But the only way that, that we're really going to experience it is if we participate in it, you know, um, and be patient. I was working on... Uh, Thinking about there's there's a lot of stuff to becoming there's a lot about becoming Orthodox that that I am concerned about. I've baptized a lot of people, kind of I don't know I don't know what a lot means really, um, but like dozens of people over the last several years, and some people move away. Some people are still really excited about their faith. Some are some have become disenchanted. Usually it's a disenchantment with, with ourselves, not with the church. Or maybe spent too much time on the internet reading, you know, Orthodox literature or watching YouTube videos rather than going to church or something. But, they're, but people, they're kind of all over the place. And I want to properly prepare people for Orthodoxy. And I started writing a list of things to address before enrolling someone as a catechumen. I didn't do that like with you guys. I mean, I talked to you about some things. I talked to you about, do you, do you believe that this is the true church? You know? Do you believe what the church teaches? Are you committed to coming to the church, taking the time that's required to prepare, and things like that? But I didn't ask very many really pointed questions, and so I've been creating a list. And not that I want to drill people and freak them out before they really commit. But I also want to be fair to people too. So, so that they're not like, wait, I have to venerate icons, for example? Well, no, you don't have to. But if you want to be an Orthodox Christian, you, you do. Because that's what we do. You know, it's part of what we do. But I created this list. So maybe you guys can hear, hear it. I don't know. See if um, any of it resonates with you. Or some, some things that you need to work on. It's a list of like 20 things maybe that I wrote down and I'm willing to, to work on it. If there's anything that you guys like who are becoming or exploring or becoming Orthodox, I've been thinking about that you think needs to be asked of people. It needs to be addressed. Let me know. So I started with, of course, do you truly believe that the Orthodox Church is the one church, the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church? And then Especially with a lot of converts from Protestantism, we have, to, we have to hit on the Mary issue right away. Do you believe that Mary is the Theotokos, God's birth giver, and our intercessor? And, you know, are, and then I would explore. We, we have many services where we ask for her intercessor, intercessions, you know. Is that okay? Are you coming to terms with that? Are you working on that? Are you making the sign of the cross? It becomes, you know, natural at church on your own throughout the week. Are you venerating icons when entering the church and at home? 
Do you have a prayer corner at home? Are you praying Orthodox prayers daily? When you greet the priest, are you asking or receiving the priest's blessing? You know, that's the proper way to encounter, to talk with the priest. Say, Father, bless. And the priest always says, the Lord bless you. He doesn't say, oh, yes, I will give you my blessing. You know, that, no, it's like, that's not the point. It's, a, it's, a, it's an iconic act. The Lord's blessing. But are you doing that? Or is, you know, you ask the priest's blessing. Do you understand the church's teaching on abortion? And I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring some of these specific things in um, to conversations with people is I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I would feel terrible if someone said, I love the church and it's all about love and humility and the spiritual life. And they, they're a year or two into orthodoxy and they're like, oh, but I still, I mean, I think abortion's fine. What? You know, because there's, there's an essential misunderstanding of what it means to be a human person there. So some of these things have to be addressed. Um, do you understand the church's teaching on human sexuality and identity? And if not, let's talk about it. For single people, are you willing to consider monasticism as a possible vocation for your life? And once you become orthodox, are you interested in marriage? If you're interested in marriage, are you willing to commit to an orthodox marriage with someone who shares the orthodox faith? The next is, are you willing to remain in this community, at least for the duration of your catechesis, leading up to your reception into the church? barring unforeseen or extenuating circumstances. You stay here like as you're preparing to become Orthodox. You have to commit. Are you involved in any service ministries in the parish? So I'm getting to some practical things like everyone should be helping out around here in some way if, you're, if you want to really be a part of this, uh, the Orthodox Church, you're part of a local community that, and we all work together to, to make this happen here. So service ministries, this is an essential aspect of being part of our parish. Are you participating in financial stewardship of the parish? And are you familiar with our giving, with our giving options? You know, we, we express what we value by how we spend our money. And, uh, and we, could only, we could only be here if, if the people who love this place and care about being here provide some, some financial support, you know, if not giving sacrificially. And I touched on that a little earlier today. Do you understand that we do not participate in the cremation of those who have reposed? So we don't believe in cremating the body, but we honor the body and give it a proper Christian burial. And this is an important thing to convey to non-Orthodox family members. So a lot of people don't realize. They just take, oh yeah, cremation or burial, it doesn't matter, whatever. But the Orthodox view on that is very different. We don't destroy the body, which was, is the person, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We honor it and we even venerate at the Orthodox funeral. And then are you willing to make the life in Christ and therefore in the church your foremost priority in life? Put Christ first and then everything else. You know, And I'm not saying lose your job so that you can make it to Vespers on Wednesday or something like that. But, you know, but I am talking about just being honest with yourself about priorities. I see a lot of people get really excited about orthodoxy and they hit the ground running. And then after being received into the church, then it's like reality sets in. Oh, I've got a life to live. I've got all kinds of distractions and friends and 
okay, I did it for the year of catechism, but then, you know, now what? And uh, unless we're really intentional, things can kind of shift back almost to the way they were. But just now you're orthodox. And uh, so, anyway, those are a few of the questions that I put together. Does that make sense? Does that seem fair to ask people those kinds of things? What do you think, John? Um, yeah, so uh, on the uh, cremation question, yeah. um, connected with that, is there any general stance on modern embalming practices? That yeah, the that's right. Yeah, we don't embalm unless it needs to be done. So I should add that. There's a really, really good book that we have down in the bookstore called A Christian Ending. And it talks about the traditional Orthodox burial practices. I mean, who would ever read a book about this kinds of stuff? But it's totally practical. Especially if we live in a time where people don't know that. But no, we don't bleed out. We don't empty the body of its fluids. We don't um, try to preserve you know, the body by embalming it. We, um, the practices are that we go in and we say prayers. We... Usually we have medical professionals help with the cleaning of the body and things like that. But there, we have a service ministry of people who go in and we anoint the body with, with oil. We help prepare them for their burial. We bring them to the church. We have the service. And we say goodbye to them. And we even ki- kiss them. We kiss their hand. Or we venerate. We have them holding an icon. Because we love that person. I don't know if you've heard me say this, but at a funeral... I was giving a a homily a a while back, and we don't say, I loved that person who's now dead and gone. I I love, I still love that person. You know? And uh, the church honors the body, which was the body is created in the image of God as well. It's not just a vessel. A Christian is not a, a, a soul who has a body just happens to have a body a body and a soul every cell of the body of Christ was this was, constituted the God man you know does that make sense to you so he took on our flesh and so we honor it and I always just look at you know especially if I'm talking to Protestant people about it who they think the body's gone it doesn't matter like who cares burn it up, discard it, whatever. And uh, I think, well, what's the best example that we have? What did they, what happened when Christ died? They didn't say, you know, cremate him or embalm him. They wrapped him in fine linen. They honored his body. And the myrrh-bearing women went back to even to care for the body of the Savior after, long after he had already died because they still love him. You know, there's, they wanted to express their love for him. And we do the same. Is that, so, is that traditional in uh, Orthodox Judaism, isn't it? They don't cremate. Correct. And I don't know a lot about that. Yeah, but, well, I know I, I used to sell funeral services a long time ago. Okay. And that was an eye-opener to me because I had to work you know, pre-planning and all that. Yeah. And when I went in that community... They said, "Well, we don't worry about it because our our um, you know our church or whatever synagogue, synagogue yeah. they, they pay for all that, so mm-hmm. the, the burden is not on the families. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a community thing. So 
Yeah. So does, what about families in the Orthodox or people that are struggling that don't have the financial means to, mm -hmm. to bury the dead? What's your question? What do you mean? I guess the question is, if somebody dies and they, don't, they can't afford um, you know, to bury the person. Then we bury them. Huh? We do it. We take care of it. No. We do it. We just, yeah, we take we take it right out of our parish budget. It's not a part of our budget. We everyone needs to be prepared. I mean, we encourage yeah. people to have a funeral plot. I mean, a burial plot. And but we own we own several plots that we've just purchased in case we need them for that reason. Mm -hmm. But it's not something we do de facto. Um, for you know, if Jim doesn't wake up tomorrow and we have to bury him, you know, then, um, you know, if they don't have the means, yeah, he's like, yay, I get to be in heaven, heaven, you know, no, but, no, but, uh, but, you know, we will do that as a community, but part of that conversation is actually telling people that one of the best things that we can do, like a good gift that we can leave for, for our family members is um, to have those things kind of set up in advance, but we're not going to just, <clears throat> we're not going to allow you to be cremated, for example, because it costs less. And you don't have to buy a, a plot that's like, I mean, how much is it around the like corner? It's like $4,500, I think. Um, so preparation is just to prepare it by $2,000. Yeah. So, we, so we've, done, we've done that. Um, we've helped <clears throat> with that. And then what do we do? Like if, if, you, if you're converting to Orthodoxy and you have family members who were cremated, you don't need to say, oh my God, I should have never, because you didn't know. You just didn't know. And when it's something is, when it's done out of ignorance before we're aware of, of these kinds of things or before our beliefs have changed, then we have to understand that believe that God will make all things right in that regard, you know, because we were doing what we thought was right at the time. So... Um, Anyway, but I'll add embalming. That's a good question. Um, and if you want, I would, yeah, I would encourage you. I've been thinking about adding it to my required reading list, actually, that book on a Christian ending. And actually, for all the things I say about YouTube, you know, being an easy distraction, uh, there are some good things out there. And there's a deacon, who, the deacon and his wife, who wrote that book on Christian burial and preparation. They've done... A few presentations that are available out on YouTube. Deacon Mark Barna is his name. And uh, that, that's worthwhile, actually, for, for anyone who's an Orthodox Christian to watch that. Not because we have a fascination with uh, morbid things, but just because it's a reality that we're going to face, you know? So, okay, well, it's just after two, and I need to let you guys go. We will not have a session next week. We're just going to keep hanging out downstairs, talking, fellowshipping, eating meat and cheese, hopefully, um, you know, in, and kind of have almost like a party, you know, before we s start the Nativity Fast on November 15th. So next Sunday, please come and hang out together, just fellowship for a while. You don't have to be up here at 1230. And, uh, and then I think... I think there was an error. I was looking at the calendar. It said no catechism the following week. I'm going to double check to see if that's right or wrong. But I'll send you guys a, a message to clarify um, what's happening there. So um, let's, yeah, we'll end with a little prayer here. So just stand up with me, please.
Let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Thou who at all times and in every hour, both in heaven and on earth, art worshipped and glorified, O Christ God, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and compassion, who lovest the just and showest mercy to sinners, who callest all men to salvation through the promise of good things to come. Do thou the same Lord receive also our supplications at this present hour, and direct our lives according to thy commandments, sanctify our souls, purify our bodies, set aright our minds, cleanse our thoughts, and deliver us from all calamity, wrath, and distress. Compass us round about with thy holy angels that guided and guarded by their host, we may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay, God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you so much for being here today. It's good to be here together.